There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. Today's episode is all about zeroing in on early October whitetails with public land expert Zach Fleer. Hey everyone, Tony Peterson here, filling in for Mark Kenyon once again. Mark mentioned he was headed down to, and I think I think I might have got this wrong, but I'm not sure, the California Mermaid Convention in Sacramento. The connection was breaking up, so I'm not sure if that's actually what he said, but it is a real thing if you want to look it up. Anyway, I hope he has fun down there, and I hope you have as much fun listening to this episode with Missouri Big Buck killer Zach Fleer as I had recording it with him. You know how during conversations on who's the best deer hunter, the usual suspects names get dropped all the time, but then someone will always say, none of those guys could hold a candle to such and such from my hometown or from my home state. That dude kills giant bucks on public land every year, but he isn't chasing hunting fame and glory. Well, those experts actually do exist in so many different localities and Zach definitely qualifies. He drops some real knowledge on October whitetail hunting on this episode and really breaks down his strategy for getting on big bucks on pressured public land during a time of the season when the hunting is supposed to suck. Zach Fleer, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me on again. Dude, it is always great to see your face. You are, uh, you're one of my favorite people to chat with uh, in the hunting space because I know that you're always getting after it. You're, you live down in Missouri and you hunt a lot of public land. And so your advice is always when, when you speak, I listen. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely wasn't always that way, but, uh, out of necessity started hunting public land and, uh, it, there's a learning curve. So starting to, I feel like I'm starting to get things figured out and I actually really enjoy hunting the public land more than I did the private farm. So. Yeah. And you, you're in a a unique position because you like, like a lot of people, you had family land to hunt, right? Is that, was that right? Yeah, we still do. Yep. But so you have a private farm you could hunt. Uh, 
And yet you're down there in Missouri and you're like, you know what? Screw that. It's too easy. I'm going to go hunt public land. Or how, how did that situation come to be? Um, when, when we started having kids and everything, it, it's not as easy to make that two and a half hour drive to the farm. And so it's a lot easier to run like 10 miles up the road. There's public land. It's like, I can hunt that and be home tonight or hunt it early in the morning and come back. And so just out of more convenience and necessity, not have being able to have the freedom to go to the farm every weekend and uh, just discovered I really liked the challenge. It forced me to learn a lot more. I actually became a hunter, I would say. Um, where's the farm? I still enjoy the farm. I love hunting with my family and my dad. Um, but it is more of a, we have stands, there's food plots and you go sit those stands. It's, there's not a lot of strategy or, um, my learning kind of capped until I started hunting public land again. So I guess that's, it made it, made it more fulfilling, more exciting when I had to actually re-engage and start learning. Uh, I thought I knew about deer deer and deer behavior but i i did not until i started hunting deer that had pressure on them so yeah and so i want to ask you about that because i i would probably say a majority of the whitetail hunters who say i've got my spot and you know for a lot of people that would be the family farm and they would only hunt if they could get there or they could they would only hunt if they could get to the permission based property or whatever situation they have and people are very generally yeah, kind of, kind of averse to the idea of like, well, I have private land I could hunt. Why would I go hunt public land? Was it was that a tough hurdle for you to get over? Or were you just like, man, I want to hunt. This is my only option. I'm just going to go do it. Uh, it was. It still was a very tough hurdle because, like, I know my my farms, uh, the family farms. I knew them well, and it was just how I had always done things. So it it uh, it was familiar and comfortable. And so the, the public land, uh, when I first got started into it, like it was hard to even see deer. I did not do it. And I hunted it, you know, hunting open fields, hunting the, the croplands and stuff, uh, which works, but it's not as consistently. You're not going to see deer in the wide open on public land on a normal basis. They're just used to being hunted. They're used to having that pressure. And so they react differently. And so it took me probably two years, uh, three years to get get that figured out and so uh, it was it was definitely a big hurdle like those first couple of years like man i would just rather go hunt a farm i know the farm i know there'll be deer um and so after after getting a little bit better with my scouting after learning a lot um those places that i originally started hunting you get get a little bit further off the fields get a little bit further into some cover and actually start using the sign to kind of direct you where the deer are now i see a lot of deer on public land there are plenty of deer there and and also seen some really great bucks so it, was, it you know that first couple of years were definitely a challenge it was uh if it weren't probably out of necessity to hunt public land i probably would have just went back to the farm but yeah. um but now like i said it's it's uh fun to, to re-engage and relearn and um just more about hunting and deer behavior so yeah well you fell into a very familiar <laughs> trap it sounds like that a lot of people, I mean, it, this afflicts all of us bow hunters and all of us deer hunters where we just default to where we can see, we default to where we think the deer are going to go. And, you know, this is, this is something I just, I've preached about for so long. Cause I believe it. It's like private land deer are not public land deer. There's a difference mm -hmm. in, in, in most situations, there's a difference. And that easy field edge stand that looks so dreamy 
on public land probably isn't worth anything after day two of the season because that's, no. that's where, and so when you, when you started that and you're like, looking, you go, okay, if I was on the, the home farm, I'd sit here in this back corner. Could you, were you also seeing like, man, there's a stand there. These guys walked in here. Were you just like, did, how long did it take you before you're like, man, the saturation point of this pressure probably means I shouldn't be hunting just like everybody else. Yeah. That was the thing you would see stands. Um, and now he was like, okay, I'll move another 30 yards down. It wasn't like, I'm going to try to find a new area. Um, cause there was, there was sign in those places deer use those places in the middle of the night, so there's still sign there. So that was like, there's deer here somewhere, but they're just not doing it in daylight. So yeah, after a while, after seeing a lot of people walk under your stand or by your stand and seeing all those tree stands, like you eventually start to explore more places. That was really, uh, when I learned how to scout too. Because on the on the family farm, we don't do really a ton of scouting. Like I said, the food plots are there, the stands are only in the same place every year, and so that's that's what you do. You put some cameras up and see what deer are coming in. Um, so when that transition happened to the public land, I actually had to figure out like where are the deer? They don't just come out to these same spots, and and they that changes throughout the season with the uh, you know food food source changes and also with the pressure. Like you said, like the first couple of days they'll be more out and available during daytime uh, and once they feel that pressure they definitely change you know they're not going to be out in the open for you to see them so yeah i think that 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 experience that you had sitting in the sitting in kind of the obvious spots right away that really sours a lot of people on public land because they go in and they do what they think is going to work and it's not going to work and mm-hmm. you know you can see the same thing happen on pressured private ground too i mean it's not it's not exclusive to public land. It's just very obvious a lot of times when you start doing that. And like you said, when you start scouting, you realize you're missing something because you're, you're like, you know, there's, you know, people will say, Oh, there's no bucks left on this land or that land. Like, man, if you got decent cover, there's deer in there somewhere. And you Mm -hmm. see that sign and you go, all right, there's a disconnect here (laughs) because I'm doing everything (laughs) I think I should. And I am not seeing them. And it just forces you to rethink. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely was the case. And sometimes it's not, you don't always have to hike three miles into a place. Sometimes it's just a, a secluded little area. Um, I, I go back to the, a few years ago, there was a buck literally, he was bedded, you know, 75, 80 yards from the parking lot. But everybody left the opposite direction going down the trail out of the parking lot. And he was bedded, he knew when people were there. So it's just those places you have to you have to scout, you have to look around, you have to find those places uh, where the deer are because uh, they observe and react to our behavior as much as we, we do theirs. So, yeah, there's a, the, you know, you've, you've mentioned this and kind of alluded to this, but th- this occurred to me last weekend, I was down in Southwestern Wisconsin and we were going to do some fishing. We were, we were hanging some tree stands and stuff too, but the the river was coming up so much and it just, we, we were like, let's, let's do our deer work. Cause we knew the fishing wasn't going to be very good. And I, I tend to mostly fish one lake now in my life. Cause that's where we have a place. And so, I mean, I go to other places, but like, that's kind of my default. Like I'm there a lot. I know it. I go to the same places. The smallies are going to be on this rock pile or that rock pile, or they're going to eat this or that, you know? <laughs> and then when I go fish the Mississippi river, it's always different. It's always changing. And it's like, you know, okay, maybe in this backwater slough, there were a bunch of large mouth eating frogs two weeks ago, but now the water dropped a foot or it came up two feet. It's like, you know, they're here somewhere, but it's, it's always, it just forces you to just think like, 
what are the conditions right now and what would they do? What, what, what potentially would they do in reaction to those conditions? And it reminded me, I'm like, this is just like freaking hunting deer on public land. Like it's <laughs> never consistent. You know, like yeah. you think, you think I, I do this every year. I go, I'm going back to this spot and they're going to cross the river here, or they're going to be feeding here. And I show up and it's always different. You, you, a lot of times you're like in the right neighborhood, but you're just, you get it wrong and it just forces you to think on your feet. And you, you know what you mentioned there about the home farm, when you get those stands up, this, this is the, this is what a lot of people do. They get their ambush sites, right? Like I, I got to stand on this food plot. I got to stand in this crossing in this corner. And then when it's time to hunt, you look at the wind direction you go, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> the wind's out of the Northwest. I guess I'm going to the old faithful here in the corner, but you're not really yep. thinking like, why would the deer be there right now? And there's a, and, it, and that stuff can be fun. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to knock it, but the, the experience of hunting pressure deer forces you just to factor in so much different stuff. Yeah, it really does. And, uh, like I said, not not even deer, like shifting from year to year, even from day to day. Somebody may, you may find like a, a really good spot and come back the next day and there's a stand there. You're like, well, you got to readjust to that because it's like, it happens, happens all the time. And I, I used to get frustrated by it. And now it's like, it's, it's public land. I'm glad there are people out here. And you do have to react. You kind of have to scout why you're hunting, which was a new concept and not... I used to think if you scouted like why you were hunting, it's like you're going to spook deer and they're not going to come back. And while they, they usually come back, that's their home. Like they're going to be there somewhere. And so uh, I think last year was, was really the first year I actually followed through on that. Actually uh, I would hunt an area and if there weren't deer, like get down and, and slowly move until you start finding sign and you would bump a couple deer, uh, but they'd go back in there the next weekend or something. And they're, deer were moving freely through there and so it's it's constantly kind of readjusting as you go um there are maybe a good a few good like old faithful spots on public land where you can go set up and seed here um but if somebody pops a stand up in there and they're hunting it on a regular basis yeah it may not be that way that year so it's yeah yeah there's always things changing yeah in my experience it's a really good idea to not count on that maybe mm-hmm. check them from year to year but I just, I never see, like, I don't know if I've ever killed a deer out of the same tree on public land ever. You know I mean? It's always, yeah. but I, I've, you know, I've killed deer in this spot where I can see the tree that I killed them on last time or see where <laughs> I tucked into the ground blind, but it's, it is always just, just different. And you know what you're talking about there too, where, you know, that in season scouting, people get real they get real nervous about covering ground and just finding those deer concentrations. But if you're not on them, like, what are you going to do? You're just going to, you're just going to yeah. wait it out or you're going to sit it out. And that to me, especially when you're talking about a time of the season, like early October, where it's not supposed to be good. Like, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to sit there and not hunt. Or are you going to sit there and not look for those concentrations? Like, you got to go out and find them and, you know, be smart yeah. about it, but they, they will let you get away with some stuff. If you know, especially if you're in the cover where they feel secure. Yeah. Yeah. And early October, I mean, you were, you heard forever growing up that that's the, like the October lull was the big thing. And, uh, yeah, oftentimes I would, I wouldn't hunt as much. And then when you have less and less time to hunt, when you're available to hunt, that's when you hunt. <laughs> and so some of that time fell in October and it's like, well, I'm not going to just sit here and uh, thank you back two years ago. I killed a great buck 
October, I think it was sixth. And then last year, uh, had the opportunity to even blew that. But um, October is a great time to hunt deer. It is a transition time. They're like things are changing. Daylight's getting shorter. The you know green stuff that they have been eating on is maturing, and it's not as great a food source. Acorns are falling uh, around here. Um, bucks are you know they're kind of changing moods a little bit, so they're all transitioning. They're not just laying there, not doing anything though. So if you can find where they are, find a like food source. I find a good white oak, and apparently not all white oaks are the same. I don't know what makes one white oak better than another one, but deer will always have a specific tree or like a ridge they prefer to feed on, and that changes year to year. Um, but just finding those places, find the food source that they're currently using, and and either set up in between the bedding and that food source or right on the food source. And uh, so that's kind of my October strategy. They're, they're definitely still moving in daylight. They're definitely still out there. It's just, just finding them. So yeah, that, that October lull thing, you know, (laughs) people get all fired up about that. And, you know, I look at that and I'm like, okay, if you're going to sit that, you know, soybean field edge, for the first couple of weeks of September, then the first couple of weeks of October. Yeah. You probably believe the lull is real <laughs> because yeah. you, you, you maybe quiet. have that burned out already, but you know, I, I, I realized something earlier, I guess it was late summer. I was over in Northern Wisconsin with one of my daughters and we had uh, set up a couple blinds cause they're hunting over there. And then we'd gone trout fishing and the, the place that I like to trout fish, it's a, it's a, decent drive back to where we stay at my buddy's cabin, but you see so many deer. So we just love it. And we might see a couple bears, you know, depending on the conditions and we were driving back and I, you know, I always have my camera ready cause I do a lot of photography and we saw this just doe standing in the road. We're on a gravel road, you know, and she was standing in the road. And so we drove up there and I got the camera ready, rolled down the window and she bounded down through the ditch and got into the edge of the woods and stopped and looked at me. And so I'm taking pictures of her and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, this happens all the time where they're out in the open, they spook. And they, as soon as they get into the cover, they stop to check you out. Bears don't do that. Usually when I have a bear, they're just freaking gone. You hear them crashing, but it's such a s- simple, stupid lesson that like how they feel in the open versus how they feel in the cover is real. Mm-hmm. And I've got, you know, it, it took me like 14 years to come to that <laughs> realization yeah. from photography, but it's true. And then you think about this transition time, like you're, you're talking about, yeah, you, you might have that white Oak playing in there or some destination food source getting, getting picked or, you know, like that's a part of it, but you also have the leaves falling and mm-hmm. you have, you know, the pressure's been hitting them, you know, depending on what state you're in, the pressure might be on for a month or a couple of weeks, or you might've just dealt with opening weekend pressure, but that changes things too. And so often it's a matter of just kind of forgetting what you think you know about the lull and just getting in and seeing, you know, where, where did they go? Where are they moving mm-hmm. when it's, when it's daylight out? And there's always a spot. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, yeah. It, like I said, you just kind of have to, to get in there and find it. And that's where, um, and even in early October, bucks are starting to make some rubs. You can find some fresh rubs. Um, there's always, there's always deer scat to, to look for and uh and beds beds are harder to find um if you're kind of just scouting quickly but you can find some but but yeah just being in there and i've you know you're gonna spook a few deer doing that but like you said they'll they'll run a little ways and they'll stop or uh if i'm 
scouting quickly, just moving through an area. It's actually surprising how tight deer will hold because I'll spook deer that that are like not that far from me and take off going up behind me. Like you walk past them, and so they they know what they're doing. Um, they know how to survive. So, but um, yeah, nothing beats just getting in the woods, getting in the in the cover, and finding where the deer are holding out. And when you usually when you start seeing sign, there'll be you'll find quite a few deer because they they tend to congregate until they get busted out of a certain area. Like you seen team tend to find several deer in that spot. So. Yeah, the, you'll you'll get that concentration, and that that you know what you're talking about there when you when you get in and it, you you have to accept the fact that you're going to bump some deer because you probably mm-hmm. will, but it's you can view it sort of either as a negative, which it could certainly be, or a positive. Like, man, you just saw a buck get up out of his bed and run away. There's a lot of intel there. I mean that yep. that that happened to us last weekend uh, when we went into this spot to just look at this, this kind of where, uh, this draw fed up to some of these fields and we walked in there, I don't know, probably a hundred yards off the field edge and just kind of looking around talking, not being quiet at all. And this was on a private place, but just like totally not being sneaky. And we were there for probably five minutes and I walked, you know, 10 yards down this trail and looked over to my right and a buck it looked, he looked, I didn't get a real good look at him. He was like a 110, 120 type of deer, mm-hmm. a decent deer gets up out of his bed and runs away. And I'm like, that son of a bitch laid there, <laughs> listened That's to us. Time. We were, and we were close. <laughs> and so we walk over there and realize, you know, like where he bedded was, it was a good spot. Like he had a lot mm-hmm. of advantages. We start looking around and it's just like, kind of hit us. Like, this is the thickest spot we've been to so far. And you've mm-hmm. got some you know, some up and down to the terrain right there and a little bench. And it was like, just such, so valuable. And yeah, we bumped a buck out of there. I don't care. Like just seeing how he used that and where he was and how tight he held, he believed in that spot. Like that's important yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they come back. It's, uh, if you don't consistently bump them out of their beds in the same spot, it's like, they will come back. It's like, yeah, if something weird happens in your house, you're not, I don't know, maybe you'll sell your house, but you're probably going to come back to your house. It's where you live. Like, but, uh, yeah, those, those tight cover spots are, are great. And, uh, like I like the open timber, uh, for the same reason I like field edges cause you can see, <laughs> but, but the, the tighter you get into some spots, the more often you're going to see deer moving. And, uh, if you can bump a deer out of its bed or just find a bed while you're scouting and, uh, try to set up somewhere between where you think the deer is going to go feed. Uh, that's really good information. And it's, yeah, like I said, it's even better when you actually see the deer get up out of the bed. Cause then you know exactly where the bed's at and they don't always bed in that exact spot, but somewhere within that small area, um, they'll come back to it. So, yeah. well, I mean, I think, you know, kind of going back to what, what you said about finding a concentration of deer, you know, even jumping some does out of a spot or just getting in where the sign starts to get real heavy, you know, whether that's just tracks and, and beat down trails, or you're talking actual buck sign, you just, you're just getting a glimpse into a place that they either really want to be because they're, they're eating there or they're going to be, they're going to stick around there because it's, it's offering them some kind of safety advantage. And so, yeah, yeah you you could bumble through there and people get worried about that. But like when you're on public land, that's one of the benefits of hunting pressure deer is you kind of can go a little cavalier. Cause you're like, well, even if I, if I don't bust them, 
you know, somebody else is going to probably, right? Like yeah. some, some small game hunter or some woodcock hunter or something. Somebody's coming through there. They're going to spook them anyway. These deer, you know, they're used. It's not like it's any of its sanctuary stuff. And so it's, yeah. it's worth more to just get in there and look around. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent is. And, uh, last year I found a spot, um, it was a pretty tight series of ridges and there was a little pond at the bottom of it and just nasty, nasty thick cover. And, uh, I had actually been working my way towards it and hunting and saw several nice bucks go into it one morning. And so I was like, I got to check this place out. And so I was trying to figure out how to, how to like quietly hunt my way through it. Um, and it, it took, took longer that way than if I would have just actually like got down and walked through it and found where they were bedding. Cause, um, uh, I eventually did get on a really nice buck in that spot. Um, and I blew the shot, but. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that later. Uh, what, what, what were you sitting on? When were you sitting on some oaks or something when you saw those deer heading down into that spot? So I was. There was a an oak ridge that I was sitting on, and they actually uh, it was three bucks. One of them was really big. Actually went down at the bottom of the hill. I thought they would cross the hill about three quarters away, heading into the real thick area. But they actually were all the way down at the bottom when they went in. Um, I don't know if they had already smelled me or saw me and did did something, but they were definitely. Uh, moving moving past me farther out of range they're about 60 65 yards but um i was sitting on on an oak ridge and it was a real narrow ridge um so i thought that would funnel them down but um so that's why i was sitting where i was sitting and then when i i saw what they were doing there wasn't a really good place to hunt them at the bottom of this ravine because the wind's always swirling probably why they went through down there they can smell everything from the bottom and the top and so instead of trying to hunt them there that was when i went into the more thick area and uh, eventually found pretty much where that buck was bedded and there was a, a significant amount of rubs and scrapes and everything in a really really small area right where he was bedded and uh, he had the advantage of uh, the pond was protecting him on one side and then the top of the ridge that he was bedded on was fairly open and then it got really thick and he was right on that edge so he could see see and smell anything above him and that pond protected him below anything because you, yeah. you really can't get to him from that side so it makes a lot of sense as to why all those bucks were in that same spot so. now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet and you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Is that a pond that it wasn't a seasonal pond? It's a pond that's probably there every year? Yeah, it's probably a two-acre, two-and-a-half-acre pond. It's not real big, but it's it's there all year. So. so he was, not only was he watering there, he was using probably some kind of edge cover around that wetter stuff. And then the, the terrain to bed there. And he had, he had lots of advantages. He did. There was no, no good way to access that. Cause if you, you just can't get to him unless you like have a canoe and come up out of the pond or cause if you come over top of the ridge, they're going to know it. You're going to see you. If you come in from the side, you can't get to it. So he was, he was in that spot. And, uh, yeah, it's little spots like that that they feel very safe in and then they're going to return back to several times. So it's So how how did you approach that then? Cuz Mark and I argue about this all the time cuz he's he's he, he'll be like you can't hunt that bottom cuz the wind's going to swirl. I'm like, "Well, I don't know. I wouldn't know that until I hunted it." <laughs> like I never yeah. I never make that proclamation unless I get in there and blow a bunch of deer out and then I go, "Yeah, that this place sucked. This was a bad idea." But <laughs> it we we act like that's a guarantee all the time and it's not in in some situations. And when you're talking about a pond that's, you know, 2 acres something like that, there there may be situations to play that where the wind's blowing out over it. Like it's not a it's not a guarantee. People think that if I just get into a bottom, I know it's going to swirl and I know I'm going to get busted. It's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. So like, how did you, how did you know that? And how did you react to it? Um, there's three secondary ridges that came down off that main ridge. And he was on the farthest to, uh, what would have been my left if I was facing the, facing the ridge. So the first time I hunted, I snuck in and hunted the, the, the first ridge and I saw some deer, but they were all uh, small bucks and does. And so it's like, I know I need to get further in. But if I tried to hunt it in the morning or the evening, I was like, I feel like I'm just going to bust deer. And so the idea came to not, I was using a tree saddle. It's like, I'm going to get on the ground. And my original plan was to try and steal hunt. So I went all the way around the pond and there was a, a ditch that ran um, up the ridge. Just the water cut out a little creek. And so I actually used that creek, which had really tall creek banks at the bottom, to get about two-thirds of the way up the ridge. And then I could see kind of where I figured he was bedding. And he either had to come down to go to the pond past me or had to go up around uh, the ditch I was sitting in. It, it came to a point, you know, about 80 yards in front of me. 
or like go around that. And that was my strategy was to sit there and either like hope he came by me. So I was actually just sitting in the creek bed and <laughs> I could just see over the lip of the creek creek bed on the bank. So I was pretty well hidden. And my scent actually, so the wind would have been blowing. I'm trying to think of what direction it was blowing. It should have been blowing from my back towards the actual deer. But when I was sitting down in the creek bed, the coolest actually drew my scent down the creek and away from him. So it made no sense. If you were in a tree stand, it would have been blowing right to him. Um, but the creek bed that I was in and the cool air flowing down that allowed me to get that close to him, even on what I, most people would consider the wrong wind. And uh, he came came out of there uh, relatively early in the day, and he was about 80 yards. And I, uh, I should have scouted more because I should have been farther up the creek than I was because it comes to a point and there was a heavy trail where they walk around so they don't have to jump the creek. And I should have been really close to that because that was a, right where he was headed. And so I actually snuck up the creek and I got within 25 yards of him. And uh, when I tried to take a shot, it was a little bit too brushy and I thought I could get it through and I didn't. An arrow deflected. But uh, I learned I learned a lot on that hunt. One, you can hunt them from the ground. And I was actually able to move up the creek. It gave me a lot of cover and safety to, to make that move without spooking that deer. Um, but yeah, the, the creek bed played a big part of that, like being able to hunt it on a, on a wrong wind and being able to sneak in and out of there without, without that deer knowing I was there. So how, how big was he? Uh, I won't, I won't say he's, he wasn't that big. Uh, there was probably uh, close to 160. I saw him twice and, uh, uh, was a surprisingly big deer for that. That's a piece of property. That's not that big. It gets hunted hard, especially during rifle season. So it was kind of shocking to see a deer that size when he came out. He was pretty impressive. but And you had no idea he was in there when you started hunting there? I assumed he was in there uh, just because the previous time that I walked. No, no, no. But I mean like that season you didn't. Oh, prior to that season, no, I had no yeah. idea. So Yeah. It's, this is something, this is a weird thing to talk about because you don't want to push the idea that there's big bucks everywhere out on public land, like, which is kind of a common thing to do right now. But man, when you hunt public land enough, you encounter big, big deer. Like I, mm -hmm. there's no different. I actually, I mean, it's, it's weighted more heavily toward public land because I hunt that a lot more, but I see, and I'm talking, you know, I'm not talking like one twenties. I'm talking like you're saying like one sixties, those type of deer. I've seen them in, on public land in a bunch of different states where you're just like, I can't, I can't see this on my best private ground ever. Yeah. And then you get in there and you get into a place like that and you go, I know this gets piss pounded during the gun season. I know there's lots of bow hunters in here. And yet the, a buck of that caliber is living there and gave you an opportunity to get in on him and almost kill him. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That experience was, it was eye opening because there, there are people that, you know, I tell that story too, and they're like, there's no way it's 160. And it's like, I have a really good at judging deer. And it's like, that deer was legit close to 160. He was, he'd been up for 50s. Um, but yeah, I would have, you know, five, six years ago, uh, if you'd have said, you can go kill like good quality bucks like that on public land, it's like, yeah, maybe on occasion. Uh, but it, like the last few years, I've been able to, to see deer like that, just big mature uh deer and it's it's kind of exciting and you talk to a few other guys that are 
are pretty serious about hunting public land and they said uh you have to talk to them for a while because they at first won't admit to you that there's any big deer on public land but after they kind of gauge that you're in there you're already in there and you're already seeing deer they'll tell you stories of like yeah we, there's some big deer in this area where i hunted so yeah. it's not un- not uncommon that there are that caliber of deer on public land I, I mean they're they're definitely out there they figure out how to survive so yeah i was out in uh south dakota hunting public land i think it was 2016 and i shot a buck opening night and i had a buddy with me who so i did i was done i'm like well i'll just scout and work for you and be the camp cook because you know <laughs> i'm out like I don't, I don't have any tags left and so he was hunting and i, I think we hunted for her uh, five or six days, but the, the farm, I, so I, I killed my buck on a walk-in ranch out there and he was hunting other walk-in ranches. And so I, I, I went in to glass that ranch in the morning, a couple days after I killed my buck and I saw a few deer coming off some private fields back down into there. And so I'm kind of like, okay, I got, I got one good spot here for him that we can, we can set up on. And I actually, I put him in there and he actually almost killed like a 130 there the next morning, which was really cool. He's, it was mm-hmm. like a, it was like one of those deals. Like every time that deer stopped, he couldn't get a shot, but it was a, you know, a great encounter for public land. But yeah, after I saw those bucks and some of those deer go through this one spot, I just went looking and there was an old homestead on that, that walk-in ranch visible from, uh, I guess you probably wouldn't, it's probably a County road. You wouldn't call it a highway, but clearly visible from a pretty busy road but it just mm-hmm. looked bucky, you know, I'm like, what? and I had nothing to lose. I'm like, I'm just going to go walk through there and look at it, you know, cause you almost always find sign and rubs in those kind of places. Mm-hmm. And those little pockets are real cover. Cause this, this ranch, like most of them that I've hunted out there and in a lot of other States is covered in cattle. You know, they get rotated through the pastures, but mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of the undergrowth is just freaking gonzo. So you're like, where, where's anything thicker. And I walked into that sucker and you know, it was, it had been grazed down some, but there was grown up grass and it was kind of cool, but it wasn't like, you know, it was, it was okay. And I'm just like standing there and I don't know what they made when they built that farm. That farm was old. I mean, it, it looked like it had been abandoned for decades, right? You know, everything's mm-hmm. wore out and wore down, but there was a, like a ditch they had dug out. So I don't know what they built at one time or what, if there was a tank or something in there, but I was standing on one side of it, just kind of like looking around and I just walked to where I could see down the chute of this little ditch. And this buck that was like 180s got up, bedded there. I mean, it was the biggest buck I've ever seen for sure in my life. Stood up 20 yards away, and ran down that chute down into this valley. And I was like, holy shit. Because I was standing. And so I walked down there and there's like horse-sized beds in this little freaking, it looked like a, like a, uh, you know, the Olympic snowboarding where they go down the pipe and they're like back and yeah. forth or skateboarding. And it's just like, it just had a little bit better grass. And I'm like, this deer's freaking visible from, or he would, he would have been, if he was moving visible from that highway there in yeah. a legit monster, just a monster. And I'm like, this has got to be like a one in a billion shot. And I tried to pick that deer up again for my buddy. And I never, you know, like, it, it was over the moment I busted him, <laughs> but bust the him, next yeah. year I went back out there. And I, I killed, uh, like 145 inch 10 pointer three days into it. And the morning I killed my buck, I shouldn't say it the next morning, same kind of deal. I'm driving around helping my buddies out. And I look out in a field on a walk-in ranch and there's a, a nine pointer standing there. That's like a 180, like a legit. And I'm like, these are, 
these are on freaking public land, you know, and South yeah. Dakota is really good, but you can find that. And people will say, well, we don't, you know, I don't have the deer that you have in South Dakota. I'm like, I'll bet you whatever is a really big deer to you, whether it's, that's a 120 or a 140 or a 160 in your state, probably within 25 or 50 miles of your house, there's public land with those deer on it. Oh yeah, there probably is. It is crazy how they will find a spot like that. And like you said, it, it could be fully visible to everybody, but it's a little depression or a little tough, tall grass, something that they can hide in because nobody looks there. Like, unless you, like you randomly thought about it and went out there, but most of the time people drive by that. It's like, yeah, there's cattle pasture. We're not going to hunt that. Um, and I, I don't have a lot of open ground. Like my stuff we hunt is like super thick timber. And so, um, you, you kind of think deer bed everywhere, but even inside the timber, there are much thicker areas and, you know, old clear cuts or edges, anything. And that's where you find deer. And some of them are, like I said previously, 40, 50, 60 yards off the parking lot or off a gravel road. And people just walk past them. They don't, don't really pay attention. So deer find these little pockets uh, and that's how they survive. How they get to be monsters is they just, they figure it out. Do you, do you find that? Cause you, what you're talking about, I mean, it, when you think about Missouri, it's a pretty diverse state, right? You've got, mm -hmm. you know, you get down into Southern Missouri, you've got huge tracts of timber and throughout the state, you've got, you know, egg mixed in in various parts and it, it, it's pretty varied. Again, it's kind of like Minnesota. Minnesota has a lot of, you might be in the big woods in Northeastern Minnesota and you'd be in Prairie in Southwestern Minnesota. Yeah. But what I find hunting big woods, cause this, this is what people ask all the time. Like, well, how do I find a concentration of deer in the big woods? How do I hunt the big woods? Cause it's harder, right? Like there's so much more cover and this goes for everybody down in, you know, the deep South and out in the Northeast. Like this is a common problem for deer hunters. But one thing that I see, and I'm, I'm curious about your take on it in Missouri is when I'm on big woods deer on public land, there's always two tracks and there's always logging roads or some kind of access routes. And I really feel in the big woods, like when you've got miles and miles of unbroken timber, those easy access spots concentrate probably, I don't know, like 80, 85% of the pressure. Like you can kind of just mm -hmm. go, okay, that two track, you know, couple hundred yards on each side of it's probably worthless because that's where everybody's going to come from. And so it does give you those chances to go, well, the parking area is here. The, the main trail goes this way. Here's this <laughs> steep hillside or this, this swamp or something right next to the, the access. Probably most people just do walk right past that. Do you, I mean, you must see that a lot. Yeah. And yeah, that's definitely something I've started observing. Cause I used to be the guy that walked down the trails and like, hung my stand on the side of the, the logging road or whatever, just because it, it is easier. And it's like, yeah, there's a few deer tracks going across it. Why not try it? Um, but yeah, you can, I've actually, on some areas, I, the first thing I do if I'm looking at a new spot is just highlight all the parking lots and all the trails because I will generally not scout them because <laughs> if, if you're past the first few days of season, it, they're like deer are going to avoid those because it's, they know that when season starts, there's more people, they just avoid them. So, um, I will generally skip those areas and look for more so like either, either you go in deep or you don't always have to go in super deep off the trails, but just areas that get overlooked, like we talked about, but, but yeah, those, there's definitely a, a difference when you're, when you go to a new spot, you can see all the people traffic on the trails. Like you can see a lot of tree stands from the trails and everything. 
and deer, like, they're well aware of that. So concentrating on other areas, making an effort to do that is, is usually what I try to do. But what, what's the closest to a parking area you've killed a buck? Um, should have killed one a couple years ago and I, I couldn't have been more than probably 120 yards from the parking lot. He was the one that was bedded probably 80 yards or so from the parking lot. And, uh, I actually walked down the gravel road to get around him, uh, for when he came out and, uh, yeah, I made, I was the one I hit in the liver and never found. That was actually a big deer. So how, how was, big was that one? Uh, he would have been, been one fifties. He had a, he had a really big frame, but he wasn't super tall, like big, massive frame. But I just, I clearly remember the size of his body, probably one of the bigger body deer I've, I've ever shot at. Just, just giant body deer when he came through. And I, he actually, uh, when I took the shot, he wheeled towards me. And so I hit him farther back than I wanted. And, uh, then we had three inches of rain and I never found that deer. So he i know he died i just never found him so you never heard about anybody finding him either no i asked but i doubt anybody would freely give that up so <laughs> yeah but. that's uh that's a rough one man and it's it's uh if you deer hunt long enough you will shoot one and have a massive rainstorm come in before you find it and it is just it just changes the psychology of the whole thing it's it makes yeah. it it is so hard to keep your, your optimism high when that happens. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and it, it does unfortunately happen. It's still hard to get, still hard to get past in that, uh, but it makes you take a little bit more time and effort, uh, to, to make good shots when you have them. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> like I said, last year I also made a, a probably a, a, not a wise decision than taking a shot that had a little brush, but I was convinced that I had a hole big enough, but. Luckily that that deer didn't get hit at all. So yeah, well, I mean, again, it's just, there are just times it's, it's dangerous times, but there are times where you get into that. I'm taking the shot moment, you know, and like everybody talks a big game about being super disciplined and stuff, but we all make mistakes and y'all, mm -hmm. everybody has flaws and it's easy to make a mistake on a big one in the, in the moment when, in the moment, yep. you know, and this is, you know, I've, I've talked to my buddies about this cause they'll, I, I don't really watch uh, like hunting shows a whole lot. Like just not, you know, we don't have, we don't have cable. It's not my jam, but and my buddies will be like, man, I watched this 12 year old kid on this farm, you know, just laser this 170 or whatever. And it's like, I can't keep it together on a hundred inches. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> they don't probably know any different. You know, those kids probably think if this one doesn't, if I don't shoot this one, the next one's coming down the trail. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, when you, when you're on uh, certain properties, that's like absolutely the case. And if you work your ass off there, out there, public, private, I don't care. And you know, this is a once a season or a once every five seasons deer, keeping your shit together is tough. And it's, yeah. it's really easy to, you know, just, just not fully factor in the angle or fully factor in those little obstructions in the way or something like that and screw it up. And it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. It unfortunately does. Yeah. And like, yeah, I'll never, I'll probably never master that ability to remain calm in those, those situations. There are guys that can do it even, you know, in <laughs> huge deer and stuff and even on like public land and stuff. And they somehow have nerves of steel. Uh, I'm not that guy, but, um, uh, I thought I kept it relatively calm. I just didn't, uh, my sights were clear. My arrow was not like 
after I replayed it and looked where he was, like if I would have looked down in front of my arrow, there was a, a branch and it deflected it. But uh, yeah, stuff you think about after things happen. Oh, that's how, that's how you get better. And I, yeah, I know people who claim to have ice in their veins and, you know, don't screw up those shots very often and don't get buck fever and all that stuff. I'm like, mm, I'm not buying this shit. <laughs> yeah, can't believe it until you actually hunt with it. Well, I mean, I know I've talked about this a billion times that when I was, when I was younger for a, a lot of my deer hunting career, I, I would fall apart from buck fever. I have missed a ton. You cannot screw up more than I have, Like, trust me, <laughs> uh, I, if, if you can screw it up, I've been there and I've done that. And it took me a long time to get that somewhat under control. And now I feel like it, it, you know, it, it, it took me a lot of different things. I had to go to the single pin site. I had to shoot a lot. I had to really go, listen, dude, do not draw your bow unless you're like, I'm killing this deer. And I still make mistakes. Like it, it happens, believe me. But it, even then, you know, like I still know, like I feel that old buck fever creeping in. Like I, it takes a lot. And I mean, when you're talking, I don't know, I don't know how many big game animals I've killed with a bow, well over a hundred at this point. Like I still fall apart and I hear yeah. people who are like, oh, you know, I've, I've killed five bucks and it's never happened to me. I'm like, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're just a psychopath. I don't know. Maybe they've killed five, but they probably missed a lot more. They just yeah. don't tell you about them. But. Well, that's what I wonder too, is I've seen, and I don't want, I should, I don't need, I almost shouldn't even say this, but I've seen in the hunting industry <laughs> where people will hide their misses. And they will just mm -hmm. hide, you know, like on TV shows and stuff like, or, you know, hide the hits and losses. And so I think we always kind of try to portray ourselves as these badass killers. Right. Mm -hmm. And it sucks to go out there and be like, I totally screwed the pooch on this one. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am bad at this. I was very bad at this last night. I shouldn't have been out there. I shouldn't have taken the shot. It's very, it's hard to do that. And so you see people portraying this image like, I just get it done out there. And it's like, okay, did you tell us about all the shots you took last year? Like, did yeah. you, have you, are you telling us about, you know, the good and the bad, the ugly, whatever? Like, I, you don't know. Like, all you know about them is what they sold you. And maybe yep, it's. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there are those maybe, you know, ice vein killers maybe out they're there. they're not telling you the, the full story. But yeah. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think there's, there, I think there's real benefit in those situations, like it sucks to hit a big one in the liver on public land and lose it. That's a horrible thing, mm -hmm. but you'll be looking at that forecast for the rest of your life going like, is this the shot I should take? There's a freaking front blowing in here tonight. Like, oh, do yeah. I want to do this or not? Like that, that stuff yeah. changes you as a hunter. Yeah, it definitely did. And now, now that's, I do pay a lot more attention to that. If like, if it's going to rain, if it's a questionable shot, I'm like, I'm not going to do that to myself again, just cause it's, it sucks when it happens. And so uh, last year, it wasn't on bucks. There was a couple of times I could have shot does and it's like, it's sprinkling right now. It's like, there's more rain coming. I'm, it's not worth taking that risk on, unless it's an absolutely like perfect shot opportunity. And so I, and I have the, it's actually worse on does. If, if there's a doe in range, um, it's really, really hard <laughs> not to shoot, shoot does. I, like small bucks and stuff, uh, even nice bucks. If I'm, if I know I'm not going to shoot it, I'm like, I'm good. I'm not going to shoot that. But if a doe stands there, it's like, I don't know, something happens or my bow ends up in my hand, and I'm like, how'd that get there? <laughs> but it definitely happened opening day last year. I, I 
went out and told my wife, I was like, I'm not shooting the doe because in this spot, it's a pain to get to. It's a pain to get out of. There is a chance that there's a big buck there. Um, and a doe walked out and like literally, I don't know if it's my unconscious mind. I was released the arrow and as an arrow left, I was like, I thought I wasn't supposed to shoot does. And like, I made a good shot on that one. So it went down right there, but yeah. The, you know what that is? It's, it's easy to talk a big game when you're not in the moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the same thing. I, I've seen these people who are, you know, they'll be like, Oh, I, I had this little, you know, this little 125 incher that I let go. And then you start getting the whole story. It's like, yeah, he was 53 yards away in the brush and all you could see was the tips of his <laughs> antlers. I'm like, you didn't pass anything. Like no. if that deer's at 20 yards, you're killing it every time. Yeah. And I, oh, I do yeah. the same thing. There's, I try with does. I like shooting does. I love eating does. And so I'm kind of like you, like, man, I'm, there are a lot of times I'm picking up my bow, but I try to try to stick to that where if I'm like, I'm deep in this spot and it's an evening hunt. Like it's, it's bucks only. And you know, if I hunt tomorrow morning and a doe comes in, but I know like no matter how much I rationalize that stuff in my head, if she walks <laughs> into 15 yards and her head's down, she's quartered slightly away. Like you better zip tie my bowstring to my cables. Cause <laughs> that sucker's coming back. We'll cross that bridge later. Like I'm shooting. Oh yeah. That's, that's where I fall. I don't make promises anymore. I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and, whatever happens happens and you know you know you know this as a uh as a married fella and a uh, father of little kids it's almost the same thing when it's like monday and you've got thursday night free and you tell your wife like i'm not i'm not hunting thursday i got too much stuff to do <laughs> you know <laughs> i'm gonna clean the garage and i'm gonna, I'm gonna you know do whatever and then it's Thursday morning and it's like, son of a bitch. Like, how do I tell her? <laughs> Cause I'm going to go. How do I tell her I'm leaving? Yeah. Yeah. You know how I told you I wasn't. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. 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 My wife has, uh, has, has learned kind of to graciously accept that, uh, <laughs> that sometimes I, you know, like cold front comes in. I'm like, uh, time for me to go on. I do try to have a date night with my wife weekly. So. That helps a little bit. But. You can have a date night after dark, though. That's right. <laughs> Our date night can consist of helping me drag deer out too. Yeah. I guess, but she doesn't appreciate those quite as much. But. No, no, that's and that's understandable. So, speaking of uh, screwing up shots and just blowing amazing opportunities <laughs> at deer, you said sometime in the last year that hunting with a compound was just too goddamn easy. The, the deer are too easy to kill. <laughs> And you decided you're going to hunt with a longbow. Where'd that come from? Uh, I have always wanted uh, to hunt with a longbow to go with recurve. I've just never invested the time in it. And it's much easier just to pick up a compound bow and go out. Um, but actually, this, this year, uh, medical reasoning, I guess I would say. So my diet has changed significantly and I, I cannot eat as much red meat anymore which is kind of terrible. But anyway, so that actually kind of changed my mentality this year where I was like, I I don't need to fill the freezer like I did. Um, and so I was like, seems like a good time to at least try the longbow because if there's a guaranteed really good way to not to put a lot of deer in the freezer, it's to take a longbow out. <laughs> Unless it, you've been it's, well We're not talking uh, alpha gal, are we? From the ticks? 
No, I oh. actually was uh, was diagnosed with stage four kidney disease uh, in May, and so they've uh, significantly changed my diet to try to prolong what use I have left in my kidneys. So. Oh man, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'll have to have a, a transplant, and then I can go back to eat kind of eating a little bit more of a, a regular diet again. But there's going to be a phase here where, so I was like, let's let's try out this longbow thing, give it a shot. That so I did not see that coming, buddy. I, uh, you might have the best reason <laughs> out of anyone <laughs> in the world to pick up a traditional bow now. Yeah, yeah, uh, it'll definitely be. Uh, I've I've been practicing a lot. I've been shooting, working on form and stuff. But if they're not under fifteen yards, there's a <laughs> they get a free pass because I I can I can hit targets out to twenty, but uh, in the like in the moment when you get in those moments, I mean, I can't can't make myself take a shot over twenty because it's it'll be way too risky for having some pretty wounded deer. So, I they're I think it's definitely doable. Uh, last year, I I mean, two of the deer I shot last year were under fifteen yards. So I was like, there's there's a chance it could actually happen, but it definitely added another layer of challenge. So. Do you, do, do you have any history of hunting with a trad bow? Did you, did you grow up with one at all or did you bow fish with one or anything? <clears throat> no, uh, actually bow fish was an old compound. I shoot it instinctively, but, um, it's still a compound. So just always the desire I've always, there's always been some kind of recurve or longbow in my house, probably for the last 15 years. I just never spent the time actually investing in, in practicing with it and, uh, kind of working on more of a form thing than uh, even more so than a compound. Like you have to have your form down and then, um, yeah, then you start working on actually being able to hit what you're aiming at. So, yeah, it's a, uh, I, whenever I feel I've, I've, I've hunted with recurves, I've killed a few deer with recurves over the years. And whenever I feel like I'm getting a little wonky with a compound and, you know, like there might be some target panic issues or something, I just go shoot a recurve for a week. And I mean, it, this sounds like a joke, but it's not when you, when you spend some time shooting instinctively with a traditional bow, and then you go back to that compound, it feels like you picked up a high power rifle. I mean, they are <laughs> different things. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. Like my little girls are shooting a crossbow and that is like such a step up from a compound. You know, people who are mm-hmm. sitting there saying that that's the same thing as a compound, they're off the rocker <laughs> yeah it's definitely not but. no it's not i mean for just as a a pure uh example of that my nine-year-olds couldn't hit a freaking elephant with a <laughs> vertical bow and they can sit there and they can laser a target with a crossbow yeah they're, they're yeah. different things uh but that that reality of shooting a traditional bow just teaches you that like you are you know, people are going to listen to this and go, man, he's only going to shoot 15 yards. Like, you know, like that's your effective range. Like there's not a, mm-hmm. there's not like just hold the pin a little high if he comes out at 50 or it's just like responsibly, that is a tight quarters deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it will make me, uh, an even better hunter coming out of this. Like, I, I don't know if I'll stick to the, to the longbow after I can return to a normal diet or not, but, um, there's something really cool about that challenge it's like i literally have to be within 15 yards of a deer and uh i think just the general experience even if i don't get to kill something like like last year i, d- I didn't kill that buck i missed him but 
being that close to a deer that caliber in public land, just that experience, it's like uh, that's that's well worth the the price of admission. So, um, and that's kind of my attitude. This going into this, I'm not fully expecting to lay down a bunch of deer, but it's like just being able to still be able to hunt and uh, trying that much harder to get within that 15 yard range of deer. And um, it's going to be, it'll be a lot of fun. So do do you envision uh, this, this new reality for you? Do you envision a change in hunting styles and methods? Cause I, I know when I, when I hunted with a, with a recurve and it, which is not as long as a long bow, obviously, the thing that hit home with me was my stand, my options from shooting from a stand were so much more limited, you know, not, Mm -hmm. not just, not just distance of course, but like, you know, with a compound, you turn around, shoot them behind you with a a trad bow, you freaking don't. And (laughs) so it actually made me, I still hunted more and I, I did different. It kind of changed how I approach things. I did different things. like sitting on the ground. Do you, do you envision that for yourself? Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. I've thought about that a lot. So I've, I've been, the last couple of years hunting out of a saddle, I need to practice to see if I can actually shoot a longbow out of a saddle. Um, so I feel like I'll be hunting from the ground more this year. I'm trying to, I'm really terrible at still hunting. So this might be a year where I, I learn to practice on that. I'm, I'm patient, weirdly patient enough to sit in a stand all day. But when you put me on the ground, like that slow movement is like, I can do it for about 20 minutes. And then I'm just like, I'm going to start walking fast again or something like I'm so learning how to be patient with the steel hunting. Um, uh, I am going to try it at, at some point. Uh, but a lot of just hunting from the ground, like using, using those creek banks, like I talked about, I did last year, a lot more um, brush piles and stuff. It'll be uh, definitely a new, new challenge and it will limit where I can set up, but um, I'm actually weirdly looking forward to it. There's something, uh, not sure even how to describe it, but there's something like really natural about just holding a longbow or recurve in your hand, like no sights, there's nothing there. It's just like the simplicity of it. And, uh, so it's what, uh, it's what our ancestors did. So, you know, just going back a little bit. It's, it's fun. I mean, I, I find myself, I, I know when either when I just kind of give this stuff up it, by this stuff, I mean like the industry stuff, or they just kick me out for some reason, I'm going and I don't have to kill big deer and you know, like I don't have such limited time. I'm going back to traditional archery. Cause I just, I, I, there is something different about that. Just carrying that around and just have that light bow simple and just kind of feeling like you have a free pass to not, not necessarily like not take it seriously, but take it a different way. Like you mm-hmm. don't, you just, you can go sneak around. Like when, when you're talking about still hunting, you know, I, when I was growing up, everybody wrote articles about still hunting. You read about still hunting. It's like, you can only cover a hundred yards every three hours or something like that. And, you know, like always move at a glacial pace. And I was like, who, nobody does this. This is bullshit. Like this is people writing (laughs) something. They want people to read and think they're cool, but nobody actually does that. Yeah. And you don't, you don't really have to, like you, you can kind of try to go that speed if you're like right in the thick of it. But Mm -hmm. if you, if you start sneaking around I mean, like, you know, watch those hunting public videos. Like those guys, yeah, in, in the red zone, they're crawling, right? Yeah. But most of the time they're not. And yeah, you, know, you don't have to. And if you give yourself, like you're talking about, a creek bank to work with or something that hides you, man, that can be some of the most fun hunting out there. It's a blast. Yeah. 
and that's what I've, I'm looking forward to is just just having fun again. I think, um, you know, hunting is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And, and uh, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Uh, you're in a, a different situation because it's, it's, you know, part of your job is to, to shoot big deer. And for me, it was uh, it was more of just trying to be cool and, and fit into the big, big hunting crowd. And um, so kind of letting all that go and and just making this as simple as possible and uh, my neighbor who's hunted with the recurve for quite a while he he put it really well he said don't think of that bow as a handicap and he said and you'll be fine and so that's, that's kind of my strategy it's like i can i know i can shoot this well i just can't shoot it past 15 yards um but that's i'm not looking at it as a handicap i'm it'll just be more of a fun experience getting that close to, to deer or turkeys whatever whatever's out there this fall so yeah. It's a, for me, when, when I did it, it was really, it kind of, it, it kind of exposed me to something that I think is just a natural tendency for myself when I shoot. So I, I grew up hunting pheasants and grouse and I can swing a shotgun pretty well. Like I'm real comfortable mm-hmm. wing shooting. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. And when it came to shooting a compound, the more pins you gave me and the more things you gave me to think about, the easier it was for me just to totally shit the bed, right? Like it was just like, <laughs> if I got a gap or I got to choose a second or third, I'm toast. It's over. Yeah. It, which took me a long time to figure out, but why I went to single pin and why I, like I had to structure my shooting style with a compound to, to be closer to instinctive, you know, like quick target acquisition, quick shot sequence. And then yep. when I hunted with a recurve, I realized like, oh, this is just kind of how you're wired, dude. Cause like, I'll, I'll never forget. I had, uh, I, I killed two deer. So I killed a buck and I killed a doe the first year that I hunted with a recurve and the buck, when he came in, it was, it was like a early October random staging area, kind of Oak flat thing. Like you're talking about. And I looked up and I don't know if somebody had spooked them or what, but three does and this buck came running in. And I drew on that buck when he was close, like six, seven, eight yards away. And I must've been gripping that string so hard that, that, that arrow came off the shelf and hit like two feet in front of his front feet. Like not, (laughs) you know, I missed my target at like eight yards by like five feet. I mean, it was just a colossal meltdown. It just, and, but it was a recurve. They didn't really know what was going on. I got another arrow on and he bounded just a little ways back and stopped quartering away. And it was just, it was one of those situations where I rushed it, but I was shooting an instinctive bow so, you know, like with a compound, you'd have, I'd have really felt it with that. It was just like, get it back, pick your spot and shoot. And that yeah. arrow just sucked right into that void behind his shoulder. And it was like, holy yeah. balls. And then <laughs> I was, you know, I killed a buck, right? So I'm out of my buck tag. And later that season, I was sitting in a kind of deep in this valley. And I looked up and this doe came down the trail and she was just trotting close. And it was like, I didn't even think about it. It's just draw back, follow her and shoot and just smoked her. And to me, like that was that moment where I was like, this is kind of just how you shoot. <laughs> like yeah. if you get too much time to think about it, you're screwed, buddy. Like you just yep. need this kind of fluid type of thing. And it, yep. I realized like, man, this is freaking fun. Like it's a different kind of hunting and it's hard, but it's so cool to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you hit it on the head there with the uh, shooting. If you shoot instinctively with a recurve or longbow, it is a very fluid thing. It's like a, uh, whereas like compound, it's very if not, you have all your, your anchors and your pins and you have to do everything. Whereas 
instinctive shooting is it's a fluid motion. You can't, you don't ever really stop it. And I think uh, I used to be really good at baseball. So like throw at a baseball, I'm hoping that that comes into play with the instinctive shooting. I was like, I used to have really good hand eye coordination. And so kind of getting back to that, because with a compound, I definitely went through like the target panic phase and um, had to change a bunch of stuff. And so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to not, not having to deal with all that stuff and just, just having fun again. And um, yeah, hopefully so far the, the fluid motion of, of just shooting is working well. And uh, yeah. so <laughs> I don't know what'll happen when you put something with fur on it in front of me, but <laughs> foam targets are in danger right now. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So you, you've got a weird situation going on uh, medically that I, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to this and myself as well hope it really works out for you and it's you get through this just fine, buddy, but you, you've also got it. So it's, it's got you in a position where you're like, I just can't go whack every dough that comes out or it, I shouldn't, right? <laughs> shouldn't, yeah. You could, but you won't. And now you're like, okay, I'm, it's kind of like putting you in this, uh, a weird trophy hunting category, right? Like where you're like, okay, well, if, if, if the right buck comes out, but now you're hunting with a weapon, that's going to be more difficult. So what mm-hmm. is the right buck? Oh. Uh. If it's legal this year uh, and in range, if it's under 15 yards and legal, it's, that's the right buck. But 
Uh, what what do you mean probably, by legal? Like, do you have APRs down there or something? Yeah, it's got to have four points on one side. So if, that's my only requirements for this year. Uh, and I would like to say that I'm going to hold out for something, you know, a certain age class or anything. But uh, the reality of in the moment, if it's legal and in under 15 yards, there's going to be arrows flung at it. So God, I love that. <laughs> I love hearing that. <laughs> that is that is sort of the uh the great intangible of challenging yourself you know whether you whether you go from a compound to a recurve or a longbow or you go from your home farm to public land is you have that you you feel like you have more license to go it doesn't need to be a giant <laughs> like and and I, I always preach this and i think some people listen i think some people think i'm an idiot but like I, I always talk about hunting Oklahoma. I love hunting Oklahoma because you get a bunch of tags, you know, two bucks, four does, and there's a lot of deer down there. And you forget when you when you live in the world that a lot of us do deer wise, whether you've got that family farm or you've been hunting twenty years and you're you're at the trophy hunter status or whatever, you forget what it's like to go hunt for deer and how mm-hmm. much freaking fun that can be and how much fun it is to just be like it, it you know, like you say, when you when you're gonna if it's legal and it's within that that radius it's in trouble it's the same thing when you go elk hunting on like an over-the-counter unit and it's mm-hmm. like calf cow legal bull just don't get close to me because i'm flinging and i i think i think we forget that sometimes and it's it can be really fun to go hunt that way yeah yeah and, and it is and that and i definitely went through that trophy hunting phase um and I'm thankful it didn't last too long uh, where I was only after, you know, you watch, watch some TV shows and it's like, Oh, they gotta be five and a half or something. And or certain, you know, 150 plus inches. And like, that's, I mean, if you have the big private farm and, and you have deer like that every year, like by all means go for it. If that's what makes you, you happy. But like in my, my situation, I have limited amount of time to hunt. Um, I've definitely handicapped myself now with a with a longbow. I won't I won't call it a handicap. I'm not supposed to think that way, but uh, <laughs> I've I've limited myself 15 yards and under. So it's it's just a different challenge. And I, I like the transition when I went from hunting the family farm to public lands. Like this is kind of just a new transition to where uh, I have to be that much more, you know, I don't I won't call it skilled, but I have to pay more attention and be be closer to deer and. Uh, I'm just looking forward to that. It's it's a lot of fun, and I'm even though over the last couple of years, I I've definitely enjoyed seeing these really big deer. But if <laughs> if a nice buck came within range at first before these giant deer, I would have, I would have definitely shot it. So I'm not not holding out for any trophies or anything. If that if that's the first deer that walks by, hey, I'll take it. But yeah, well, that's what what you're talking about there. I think is a really important distinction that a lot of hunters don't make where you you're out there hunting and you're hunting concentrations of deer and you might narrow that down depending on the situation to concentrations of bucks. But mm-hmm. we, we talk about scouting and we talk about hunting in sort of this like narrow lane where it's like, I I'm only looking for big buck sign or I'm only hunting big bucks. And it's sort of, it it's a disservice because it kind of sells this, this thought process that that's, that's it. That's all you got to do. But really what you find out, like when you, when you go to that public land, if you're not hunting deer first, you're not going to find the big bucks. 
And if you find that concentration, yeah. sometimes you get narrowed in on them and you get exposed to something that gives you something to work with on a really big one, but it doesn't mm-hmm. start that way. Typically, like you don't, you don't start out and be like, I walk in there and the first year I saw was the 160. <laughs> it's like, usually you start out and you're like, I don't know, where's the, where's the oak tree that's hot. And then it's yep. like, okay, you sit there and you get on some deer and you're like, okay, they're telling me something. And it's a process of, of figuring out all the deer and in all of the deer are some of those big ones. But without yep. that, you don't you usually don't get to the to the big ones without starting on the deer. Yeah, yeah, and there are a few times where you can get lucky, and that the first deer that comes by might be the big one. But but yeah, it definitely um, you definitely have to find the deer first, and then um, this October time frame, the the bucks and does in the early part of October anyway are normally not in the same exact spot. They're they're usually close, but so you kind of figure out where the does are and then you transition kind of find where the bucks are or if you find the bucks first but but yeah you um uh, last year it was that's how i found that that real good bedding area where the bigger bucks were is i started seeing more more bucks and the smaller bucks at first and then the closer i moved in like, then i started seeing some of the bigger ones so it is it is that you know find the deer and then find what you're looking for i guess whatever that is if you're trophy hunting or if you're going to settle for the first legal deer that comes by like, uh, do do you see, cause I, I spend a lot of time looking for deer on acorns and looking for deer in early October where I don't, I wouldn't, I would agree with you. And I, I would say they aren't necessarily living in the same spots. A lot of times, like I'll see bucks come in from one way and does come in from another, mm-hmm. but I still see this, this kind of crossover stuff all the time. So yeah, I, I think about. Just as an example, I was hunting in northern Wisconsin, I don't know, five or six years ago. I moved into this spot that had a creek bottom going through it. It's all big wood stuff. You can go for miles there on public land. It's all big woods. And the first night I was in there, I saw, I think I saw a lone fawn and one other doe kind of moving through. The next night I sat it, I saw like 125-inch eight-pointer, really nice buck for up there. And he crossed the creek in a certain spot. I moved in there a little bit on him. The next night he didn't come back, but some does did. And they, they came from different directions. They used the same crossing and they were kind of mm-hmm. heading, they were heading to the same clear cut. And mm-hmm. then I ended up the following weekend coming back and killing a buck in the morning in that clear cut, like 75 yards down from that crossing. Yeah. And it was one of those deals where it just reminds you like, yeah, those bucks are probably bedding in like the most advantageous spot. And they might be browsing yeah. that soft edge in a different way. But there's still these these crossover things where you're like, man, if you see a deer doing something, like if if those deer are coming into that white oak, and like you said earlier, you know, you see bucks and little bucks and does, you know those big ones are around somewhere. Like it's not like yeah. they're on the next property over. It's just they might have a little bit different program on, but there's an awful lot to be learned by seeing those other deer. Yeah, definitely is. And it it varies from area to area too. I've I found this out. The, the section I was hunting last year, uh it, it was weirdly like segregated there's i hunted the like several ridges and it was just does 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 and then it was like switched and then i started seeing the bucks as i as i moved to different areas and so i i don't know if it's always that way or if that was just just happened to be the deer that i saw when i was hunting those places um but there's another spot i hunt and even this time of year you'll see does come through and then you'll see bucks come through um and you know they're bedding in different areas, but they do use the same trails. But yeah, like you said, there's always either the food source or a certain crossing or something. Um, 
they're at, at some point in time the bucks and does are going to be using the same food source so how they get there and if there's limiting factors like a crossing or a real tight ridge that they're going to have to use to get where they want to go there's always those places so when you see deer doing something consistently kind of a pattern you know it's probably something that eventually you'll you'll find a bigger deer doing that as well. So do you, do you think that that situation there you're describing where the does were on some ridges and the bucks were in a certain spot? Do you think that is just a, a testament to the pressure in there? And those bucks are kind of pushed all into the one area or an area where they're like, people just aren't coming here. And you know, the does are probably yeah. in a place that maybe they get messed with a little more, but those bucks are like, this is we're, we're taking the best spot. Yeah, I think it was. And I, I didn't realize how, hard that place got hunted because um, I had previously only hunted it in September, October, and there was nobody there. Uh, but I got brave and went in there once during rifle season last year, and there were people everywhere. Like, there was no square inch of that place that you could have was not covered by somebody in orange that you could see. And so I didn't I didn't actually, I've never been there during rifle season. I didn't realize how much pressure that place got. So that makes makes more sense the the heaviest densest cover that's the hardest to get to is where those bucks were where the big bucks were and where most of the bucks were but um the other places that were a little more open uh, is where i saw all the does so i think that makes a lot of sense in the pressure they the does were betting where they could and the, and the bucks had the had the tight cover taken over so did they just got the prime real estate i i've got a spot on a, a dairy farm that i've had permission to hunt forever down in southeastern minnesota and it's one of my favorite places to go hunt early season because I can, a lot of times I can shoot a doe in there. Yeah. And so I like it, but it changes over when, you know, you get closer to Halloween and you start getting closer to the rut. It's, it's one of the best places I have to see a big buck on that farm. And mm-hmm. they come from, they seem to come from different spots on the ridge. And that might partially because the bucks are using the wind a little bit more that time of year for certain things. But it always surprises me that you've got this, you know, this one area that, you know, at any given time you could go in there and not believe there's hardly any bucks around other than you see some sign and mm-hmm. then the conditions get right. And those bucks are there and you're like, man, they were never that far away. Like they were in there. They just weren't, you know, like they just weren't ready to get up on their feet in daylight and come there while the does were. And it's just, yeah. it's crazy how you see those differences. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely differences and like i'll never fully understand why, why bucks act that way i guess it's just kind of self-preservation mode and um uh, but yeah those seem to be uh kind of scattered out everywhere on a landscape i guess uh which is weird because there's there's studies that say that a doe with a fawn is like the most territorial deer in a herd um but it seems like they'll kind of take up residence in in uh, cover that's not as ideal where it's like the, the big bucks are always in the thickest nastiest place or the place with the most that gives them the most advantages to escape from and so they only only during the rut do you see them really kind of move out of those places on a on a pretty consistent basis so yeah like this that early season time frame you just have to define where they're holed up at so yeah i think we get a i think we get a skewed view of, of deer herd dynamics by where we mostly see our deer. Like if you're talking about sitting on the edge of a soybean field or something, you see a bunch of deer pour out there and you go, Oh, they're all the does are together. But yep. when you, when, like you said, when you look at those studies on home ground and then fawning grounds and like the best places to drop a fawn and stash them, or you spend enough time hunting and watching the same does, 
Like mm-hmm. you realize how they're nasty. <laughs> like they're, <laughs> they are real territorial. And I think you just don't, I don't, I think we just get such an unclear picture of their, the entirety of their existence and how, how they're really using the landscape. So when you talk about, you know, on this ridge, there are some does and that ridge, there are some does. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's probably seven and a half year old does out there who pull off two fawns every year that have spots that are damn near as good as those bucks. Yeah. But you're seeing that year and a half, two and a half year old doe out there. And she's like, well, I can't go, I can't go over there. Cause she kicks my ass every time. So I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to lay here on this, this ridge with my fawns and until she croaks and then we can move up a, you know, move up a move spot. Up but I think, yeah. I think that stuff happens more than we even, we could even possibly imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's cool to think about, like I said, well, I'll never fully understand all of it, but, um, I, I didn't realize until I'm trying to think that was quite a while ago, five or six years ago. Uh, I had a bunch of does hunting on a family farm that came in the same food pot. They all came from different directions and, and you don't really think about that. They're just like, Oh, there's a bunch of deer in the food pot now. Uh, but the two biggest does actually kind of met in the middle and they, they were on their hind legs, just fighting each other and how loud that was like their hooves hitting each other. Like they were going at it hard, and then uh, the smaller doe ended up, you know, getting pushed off, and she went to another place on the farm. And so, it's uh that happens probably more often, like you said, than we know about. Um, and I until that point, I never really thought about it because, like, if you see a big bean field and there's a bunch of deer in it, you just assume that they were together the whole time. It's like no, they're coming from all kinds of different areas, and they they're congregating there. So, yeah, but, uh, there there's like a truce on a big enough food source where they kind of just, they keep their comfortable distance. But you yeah. see that, like I, I saw that I had a, I owned a little property here in the cities that I sold a couple of years ago, but I had like one little kill plot I put in there and there was one great big old doe that kind of claimed it. And she would, you know, I'd get pictures of her like pushing little bucks and stuff off there. And one year I'm like, I'm going to kill that doe. <laughs> like this is getting personal now. And she busted me stands blinds. It didn't matter. I couldn't kill her. Like I'd go in there. <laughs> it, it was, it was actually really fun. Cause it was like, I, I have a hit list of one fricking doe. There's no bucks in there hardly, you know, <laughs> and I couldn't kill her. And, but I would get pictures of her and I saw her at times push other does off. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, you know, and you hear this and I've seen this down in Texas. Like when you sit over a feeder, when you have a little tiny concentrated food source, then all of a sudden you see that nastiness come out. Cause it's just like yeah. the, the urge to get, get in under each other's guard is, is way bigger. Like there's, there's more yeah. at stake. And so you see that play out, but they're freaking nasty, man. And they, they yeah. are territorial. Yeah. Those old, those are, and, and we have that, that doe that, that beat up that younger doe. I, I assume it's the same deer, but we have truck camera pictures of her throughout the years. And I have no idea how old that deer is. We've, we've kind of, not shot her i don't know why my my dad said one year that he's like ah let's just not shoot her because she always dropped fawn, two fawns and so like let her go but yeah she definitely had full full reign over that section of the farm so um it's it's just kind of cool and it it's it's weird how those does aren't afraid to come out like in a food pot like that during the day that stuff but how quickly uh they can pick off when like you're there in a tree stand grab line something it's crazy to me how easily they pick up on stuff like that. Yeah. So. Well, I, I honestly think we, we talk about bucks, like they're supernatural. I'm like, man, give me an old doe with a couple fawns. And she's going to kick your ass. Like she's, <laughs> she's on her a game. And when the thing about big bucks in a lot of times when you see them 
is they're just cruising through like they're king of the world and they're mm-hmm. not that cagey a lot of times even on public land they just don't put themselves in a position where they're moving in daylight a ton yeah yeah i, w- I would agree with that and some people will, will say you're crazy for saying that but i have noticed that I, if if they're not pressured like some of the bigger bucks that i've taken shots off and killed yeah, they're just moseying through the woods. They're not moving quietly. Like you can hear them coming. It's like, yeah, I know that's going to be a buck. And it's like, they, they don't care. Like the does will sneak up on you. Like, oh, I don't know where she came from. But that buck will be dragging his feet, making all kinds of noise. It's like, it's like if they're unpressured, they, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's just their attitude or mentality, but yeah, they feel like they can do whatever they want. And they're kind of moseying along. And uh, that's, that's useful to our advantage if we're in the right spot. So, yeah. Well, and I, I, that's one of the reasons why it drives me absolutely nuts when people will be like, oh, you know, why would you shoot a doe in October? Just go kill one on a, you know, in December. And I'm like, you do realize that everybody's hunting situation is different. <laughs> like, yeah. Not everybody has a food plot to go kill, a, you know, a bunch of does in December easily. Like I, I have situations, I mean, one of the biggest hunting challenges I've run into is killing big woods does. In, like in Northern Wisconsin, I, and I've talked about this a whole bunch, but I get busted on those deer every time I draw on them. Like they are just mm-hmm. on me. It doesn't matter how high I am in the tree. If I'm hiding on the ground, it's like, I just count on that because they are on their a game so much. And I'll have times where I'll be like any deer that gets within range, any doe that gets within range <laughs> in the next month is in trouble. And I will struggle to get a shot. And I'm like, yeah this is freaking nuts. Like it, it shouldn't be this hard, but we sort of undersell that because we, every doe is kind of the same to us. And we've, we've really pushed this message that there's not much challenge in that. And I'm mm-hmm. like, man, this is entirely dependent on your experience level and the places you're hunting these deer. Yeah, it definitely is. That, that would be a fun new challenge. Go out and try to shoot like the biggest doe off a property. Cause I bet, that would be more challenging than the biggest buck on the property. They're, they're pretty cagey. Uh, and especially like you said, the big woods, I get busted drawn all the time. Last year I got smart and tried to set up more with the sun at my back where I thought I would get a shot, which was actually turned out to be really well. Cause they can't see anything except for bright sun. So that worked out or I'll let them walk past me now. Cause there's no way on a mature doe like that, that you can get drawn. If she's like even a head down, anything, it's like, she'll pick you up immediately. So, you let them get past you a little bit you can get away a little more but uh but yeah they're they're pretty cagey yeah they i had uh i think it was probably like 2018 i was i hunted over in northern wisconsin a lot and i was hunting for bucks and i was hunting for one doe and Mm -hmm. i was i was over there during the rut or i you know like first week of november after hunting a whole bunch in september and october and hadn't killed a thing and I finally killed a doe over there. I was set up in this spot on this chunk of public land, and I heard him coming up out of this valley below me. And it was the the earliest I've ever drawn. You know, people are always like, oh, it was a full draw for like three <laughs> minutes. It wasn't that long, but it was as long as I've ever been drawn on anything because I heard the trail. I knew where they were going to come out. I heard a trail she was on, and I could hear it. It was, sounded like two of them. And I'm like, if this is a buck, I'm shooting him. If it's a doe, I'm shooting him. So I'm just getting drawn. <laughs> and that deer walked out and she cleared that tree in front of me and looked right up at me, but I was already drawn and I thumped her, but it was like, Jesus Christ, can you guys like not give me a break here? Yeah, I agree. And yeah. you know, when you, when you do stuff like that, I think, I think it's the same thing. 
as, you know, picking up that longbow or going from the private farm to the public farm. Like what you think you know and what you actually know about deer are different. And mm-hmm. the more you do stuff like that, or you're just like, you know, if, you, if you're kind of dismissive about does because you could kill them all day long on your food plot on your farm, go down the road and try to kill one on public land. Like you'll yeah. learn a lot about yourself and a lot about deer. It's not easy. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. It's it's a fun challenge. Like any any deer on public land, and I I always tell people that it's like it's it's a great accomplishment because with a with archery gear, with a rifle, you can get more lucky. But um, yeah, it's it's a different ball game. They're they're used to being hunted. They're used to having that pressure, and they learn how to how to react to it, how to survive, and it, it makes them more wary. They're walking around looking for danger more often than like on the private farms. We make a really big deal about not pressuring our deal deer so it's like they're not pressured so they're not not constantly looking for danger until you know later on in the season and they get that way but um yeah those those publicly deer go through a lot to survive each year if you think about it and so it's like they're definitely they're definitely more in the game i guess it seems like yeah and it's you know i mean the pressure thing is everything i mean it, it the the way that we figured out how to hack the deer herd and not pressure them is it is a game changer. Like it, managing a property and not pressuring them is it's the it's the the best route to easy deer hunting. Like we've mm-hmm. <laughs> we know that. Yeah. Like and it's people love it and it's fun and whatever. Go nuts for donuts. But when you go hunt, where you know not only the one thing that I've noticed is when you get on really pressured deer, it's bad enough. Then if you get around a bunch of predators and not just us, but the four legged predators. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels like it gets that much harder and you just realize like, this is the thing, this is the driving force. Like their, their awareness that at any second something can kill them is the thing that makes it really difficult. And when you yeah. trick them into thinking nothing's going to kill me because <laughs> I've walked out here for the last five and a half years and it's all been peachy keen and I can eat yeah. these brassicas and this clover without getting shot. Then you get them in a different position, but when those deer are, you know, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half. And they're like, oh, not only do I have all these assholes up in these tree saddles and these <laughs> stands, I got bears eating fawns when they're little and I've got bobcats and I got coyotes and I got wolves. Like you're talking about deer that are hard to kill. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually thankful I don't live up where you do. So I don't have, we occasionally have black bears around here, but like very rarely and definitely don't have wolves. So it's, it's coyotes and bobcats, but they, they do some damage on fawns. So, uh, I'm, I'm thankful I don't have the extra added challenge of <laughs> extra predators putting pressure on my deer as well. Like it, that's that's got to be hard with the the black bears and the wolves now too. So it's it just changes it. I mean, it, most of it is like a fawn recruitment issue, right? Like when you talk about yeah. black bears, they're phenomenal at finding fawns and eating them. Mm-hmm. So there's a short window where black bears are they they're you know seriously bad predators on deer, but it's like fawns of you know from when they drop to however you know two months old or whatever it is it's not very long but they do a ton of damage in that time frame and then Mm -hmm. you know now with like bobcats you can see videos of bobcats killing full-size deer in places which is crazy because they're not that big but they're cats (laughs) you know those videos are crazy yeah uh and i had a uh, cameras and when i used to work with bushnell had cameras in Kansas and we actually had pictures of uh, a bobcat running down a adult doe. And then the next spring we had pictures actually, I think it might've been in the same Creek bed, but of a bobcat that ran up and grabbed a fawn in the, 
the doe actually was like stomping on the bobcat and the fawn both but the video the video cut out so i don't know what actually ended up happening there but yeah bobcats are i think they get a little bit uh dismissed as fawn killers but they'll take down a full deer if they need to yeah i i've got uh we we have a a healthy population of bobcats over where i hunt wisconsin and i've seen a few uh i actually had one walk right up on me last year when i was on the ground i actually heard him purring or her i know it was a her uh before i saw it. it was that close it was like six feet away from me and i'm sitting there and like you know in your reptile brain you hear this noise and you're like god that sounded like a cat purring <laughs> you know but you're like there's, there's no cats around me this is stupid <laughs> and then this sucker walked out yeah. right in front of me and she was actually i think she was so surprised that i was that close that she didn't spook right away because i've had other ones walk out and you know like way far away and they'll sit down and look up at you like i know you're there i see you and you're like man i've had deer walk by me here like crazy yep. it's they're incredible yep. animals and then you know <laughs> when you get when you get into the wolf situation yeah. uh they <laughs> those suckers swing through and it's just not much fun for a while usually there's like no way around that yeah no they do do some damage whether they're it's I, I don't know how big a territory they have. It is, it's kind of nice that they don't like stay in the same place all the time. They do kind of move, but yeah, they, they do some damage when they come through. So. They just, uh, at least in my experience, I, and I've been around them quite a bit. It's yes, they're freaking taking deer and elk and everything off the landscape, but they also just change the behavior of the deer. It feels like a lot. Like if you have a pack swing through yeah. It just feels like a UFO came down and sucked up all your deer and took them somewhere else. Cause they're just like, <laughs> screw this. <laughs> like whatever, the, whatever they're doing in response to those predators and anybody listening to this, who's hunted elk out where the wolves are really take hold knows like it freaking sucks. Like it's just, it, it yeah. make it changes the game in a way that's just, it's not much fun. Yeah. And it's, it's not even, just the deer and elk that they kill, but that amount of stress they put on the herd because the deer aren't going to come out and in the open, they're going to stay in the cover. Like they're not going to go feed. They're going to stay where they know they're not going to get eaten. And so they, it's just so much stress and stuff on the deer herd. But when you have a pack of wolves come through, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an added challenge for you up there. Yeah. It's just more pressure. <laughs> just more hunting pressure of a different variety um yeah. zach this this has been so much fun buddy it's always it's always great to chat with you um i can't wait to hear about uh all of your longbow success this fall and and see what you <laughs> kill on public land there um but honestly buddy thank you so much for coming on man yeah thanks tony for having me and that's always good being on with you good seeing you and uh best of luck to you this fall as well hopefully uh one of us has some good stories coming out of this fall. So. Oh, we will, buddy. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Tony. That's it for this week, my whitetail-loving friends. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been Wired to Hunt. For more whitetail info, check out my Foundations podcast, which is available right where you got this one, and check out our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. If you still want more, and I hope you do, visit themeateater.com slash wired and check out articles from yours truly, from Mark, and a whole host of whitetail killers. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy 
are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 